All right, let's turn back now to John chapter number 5. And we picked up again last week um, dealing with the final in the seven proofs of the deity of Christ. We dealt with proof 5, 6, and 7. So in a way, we're kind of changing subjects here, but still dealing with much of the same conversation that Jesus was having with these Jews. In John chapter number 5, verse 28, notice the word of God. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And shall come forth they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth, but I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. There is a declaration of witnesses here. And I want you to pay as close attention this morning as you can, because time allowing, I'm going to ask you a few questions like I did last week, just to kind of see if we're following exactly what's being taught here. But you'll notice here that as verses 31 through 34 specifically, there's a very interesting uh, dialogue that is provided here. Jesus makes statements that seem again to be contradictory to who he is. Although we know that he never contradicts himself, the word of God is always uh, true. But notice again what he says in verse 31. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now let's just settle some matter here. Jesus is not saying he's a liar. But it seems as if he is saying something that is very important to what we ought to consider. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now let's read on just a minute because this will clarify it. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. Now let's understand the law, let's understand the word of God, and this goes all the way back even to the Old Testament. Jesus, remember, came to not do away with the law, but what? To do what? To fulfill the law. This is an example of Jesus fulfilling the law. It was unlawful for a man, or a woman for that matter, but primarily in the context, for a man to be his own witness. In other words, you could not testify on your own behalf. The law would require that there had to be other witnesses. Many cases, Old Testament-wise, if you study it out, it was at least two other witnesses. 
Jesus here is declaring not that he's a liar or not that he's not true, but he's declaring that I'm going to fulfill the, the law, I'm going to fulfill the obligation, that if I just simply gave you a witness and the only witness I gave you was me, then you don't have to believe me. All right, by following that, you don't, you don't have to follow me. But the Lord is doing something and he's saying, don't even take me as an authentic testimony on just my word alone. In other words, what I'm going to do to you and what I've already done for you is I have provided other witnesses. I have not just my own witness. I've given you other witnesses. He mentions two other witnesses. He mentions his own father and he mentions John. So right now we see that Jesus himself is declaring, don't take my testimony on its own. On its own. But remember, I've given you two other witnesses, God the Father and John the Baptist or John. Now, that, in my math, that equals three, right? So there's at least three witnesses here that Jesus is referring to. But he says, if, if all I was giving you was me, then you shouldn't believe me. Now, again, is it because he doesn't, he's not worthy of it? Absolutely not. Is it because he's telling a lie? No, he's fulfilling the law. His single witness was true. What he's saying, if, if Jesus himself stood here today and he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, we would believe that. I sure hope you believe it. John 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's truth. But remember, Jesus has been doing something. He's been declaring and proving his own deity. So what is he telling them? Don't take just my word on my own deity. Take the witnesses of my Father and of John. What is Christ doing? He's again declaring an agreement between himself and the Father. Christ's testimony, if I was to say whose testimony was greater, Christ or John, which would you say is greater? Was John's testimony or Christ's testimony greater? Christ's testimony is greater, okay? So as great as John's testimony was, being the forerunner to Christ, as great as he was, the greatest testimony of Christ is Christ himself. Agreed? That's, he's the greatest, he is the greatest witness of himself. But again, to fulfill the law, even the most reliable, trustworthy witness could not witness and testify to his own cause. That's what's happening here. So here Christ declares that there is an equality again with himself between he and the Father. Christ had a greater testimony than John, but because the word of God, and we'll see this in a few moments, did not abide in the Jews... Here's what Jesus is telling them. You refuse to believe me, and you'll refuse to believe that I am God no matter how great the witness is. In other words, you wouldn't believe John, you won't believe me, and you're not going to believe God the Father. You, why? Because your words do not, my words do not abide in you. Now, we're not going to get to that, those charges until next week, but that's where this is leading. So verse 28 shows us, and Jesus begins this, this dialogue with them. Remember, he, he just, the last words he said in verse 27, we looked at last week, is that he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We saw last week that Jesus is the ultimate judge. When man, all men, sinners and believers alike, those that are still uh, in their sins, dead in sins, and those believers, all will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate judge. And immediately Jesus turns this dialogue into the resurrection. He says, marvel not at this. 
Now he's been declared as the judge. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. All that are in the graves are those who've died in Christ, those who have died in their sin. But what is common? All that are in the graves will be raised again. Why is this important to the to argument that Jesus is making here? He's already, we've already proven his deity. We've proven his sovereignty. We've proven his lordship. We've proven he has authority that's given to him by the Father. We've already seen that Jesus was declared to have the power to quicken and give eternal life to those whom he'd give eternal life to. He's telling these Jews, in, with, with taking all this into account, don't be surprised and don't marvel at the day, because it's coming when every grave is going to open up. And you know what he's saying? I'm the one that's opening the graves. Don't be surprised when that day comes. It's coming. Folks, I can tell you that this morning. The day is coming. The day is coming when every cemetery in every part of this world, every single person in those graves, they are going to rise up and they're all going to face a judgment. You're going to face the judgment, the bema seat of Christ as a believer. You're going to stand before the Lord, not as a matter of your eternal soul, but what you did with the life that God gave you. And then there will be sinners who are still dead and dead in their sins who will stand before that same judge. Now, based on the tone of Jesus' words to them, he's basically telling them, marvel not, there's coming a day because you don't believe in me. You're going to stand before me one day. Now, that's, that's a frightening thought. Here's this man who they don't even believe is God saying, you're going to stand before me, and I'm going to be the one that's going to raise those from the grave. When we look at this this morning... The hour is coming is a direct reference to Judgment Day. That day is coming. There was an hour in this country alone that you could not go to church without hearing the preacher say, Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Death is coming. Jesus is telling them the hour is coming. And by the way, that day of judgment is closer now than it was the day Jesus sold it to these Jews. Because think about where you are in the timeline here. Jesus had not yet even gone to the cross. Yet he's saying judgment day is coming. Again, he's already been declared to be the judge. Verse 27 says he was declared to be the judge. He's telling them, I'm going to be the one that is going to be judging all that are in the graves. That judgment day upon the return of Christ says in the grave shall come forth. You don't think that's something to see. You go out there now to the cemetery, there's nothing coming forth. You could walk to every tombstone in that place and say, rise up. Nothing's going to happen. Nobody's moving. Nobody's stirring. People are so afraid of cemeteries. There's nothing there. So it's a shell. There's nothing there. But yet he says there's coming a day when they're all going to rise up. Don't marvel at this, he says. Don't be surprised. This physical resurrection from the dead, notice what he says. Verse 29, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Here's that living proof that there's only two manners of eternity. Those that have done good and those that have done evil. Now, before we say, preacher, wait a minute, you've been teaching us there's no such thing as doing good works to get to heaven. I'm glad you're thinking that way because that's exactly right. He's not talking about their works. He's not talking about their merit. He's talking about where, whom, to whom their standing is in. 
But he says there's only two routes, folks. There's two routes. Every person in a grave today only has one of two routes they're on. They're either on the route that's done good or on the route that's done evil. Bad English, but solid doctrinally. Okay? You either done good or you done evil. That's, that's where we are. And again, Jesus tells them it's under the resurrection of life, the resurrection of damnation. Uh, there's a sneaky, scary idea out there that some people are teaching that if you die outside of Christ, there is no resurrection. No, there's actually a resurrection for all. It's a resurrection. Here it is right here. A resurrection unto life or a resurrection unto damnation. This morning, every soul here, every person here, every grave and every cemetery only has one of two. But you're all going to be resurrected. That judgment day is coming. There's nothing you and I can do to stop it. You can't prevent it. You can't slow it down. Jesus very clearly telling them there is these two classes of people. Those that have done good will arise to live eternally with him. Those words, done good, do not refer to their own personal goodness. It doesn't refer to their own works as if they merited some kind of favor, but it refers to the new nature that was presented in them, the righteousness that's been given by Christ himself by his glorious, marvelous grace. That's what done good is. If you're saved today, you're one of the do-gooders but not because you did it with your own works or merits, but because Christ has imputed his righteousness into you. You've done good. All upon what Christ has done. The second are those that have done evil. Describes the great company of unbelievers who've lived in sin, they've lived in unbelief, they died without repentance toward God and faith in Christ. They refuse to hearken to his words of grace. They refuse to believe Jesus Christ is the truth. But what's going to happen is they will be compelled to hear him one day. Philippians talks about every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every unbelieving body in every soul, every grave across this world is going to rise up one day and every unbeliever is going to say Jesus Christ is Lord, but that will not be for salvation. That will be for God declaring who he is and they will still be cast off into outer darkness. But every knee is going to confess what Jesus is telling them. Every knee is going to confess that I am God and I am Lord. So when we think about what's happening here, we understand that there is only one of two routes that the resurrection will be. Unto eternity and glory with Christ or to eternal damnation in a place called hell. God's judgment throne is what will determine that. Now, look what he says in verse 30. Again, now, if we've been following along in John chapter 5, this is not going to strike any of you as Jesus saying something contradictory because we've paid attention, we've followed this, we understand that he's not saying I'm limited or restricted. He's again acknowledging the agreement between himself and the Father. We're equal. He says, I can do, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father, which hath sent me. So Jesus says, I cannot act independently of the Father. We're one. I can't judge independently of the Father. I cannot do anything independently of the Father. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just. Why is my judgment just? It's just, my, it's just easy for me to say, my judgment is just because it agrees with the Father. Okay, that's, that's the simplicity of this. He's not implying he's limited in power, 
but he's rather declaring again his divine nature, his divine character, his divine perfections. If he is in fact God the Son, then his will and his work is in perfect agreement with God the Father. Jesus Christ has never done anything against the Father's will. Okay, again, we've got to remember the audience. He's talking to unbelieving Jews who have for, for, for centuries said, we believe in God. But he's basically telling them, if you don't believe in me, then you don't believe in that God either. Because if, it not, if it's not in, including me, then that's not God. So this, look what he says, my judgment is just. Now, why does that matter? It matters because of what we just read in verse 29. Those who go to the resurrection of life and those who go to the resurrection of damnation, what is he saying? My judgment is just. Nobody ends up damned who shouldn't have been damned and no one ends up in glory who shouldn't have been in glory. The judgment of God is just. It's right. But it's not just Christ's judgment. It's his judgment that is in agreement with the Father. All of it is together. That's a solemn thought this morning, folks, to think about that whatever we see when this time comes, when these graves open up and people rise unto eternal life with him and others rise to damnation, no one will be able to say Jesus Christ was unjust. Now, in our humanity, there are parts about that that seem unjust. And let's be honest with each other. There are parts about the judgment of God we think that doesn't seem quite right or quite fair. Yet he says, my judgment is just. Again, remember who's speaking these words. Jesus is speaking words that are very solemn. In the resurrection, and folks, I want, you to, I want those of you who are saved today and you know what it is to be saved by God's grace, I want you to think about a time, a moment in history that's coming when God will no longer deal in grace, but he will deal in inflexible righteousness. In other words, we're being dealt with in grace right now. Even the unbeliever today is being dealt with in grace. When judgment day comes, it will no longer be grace. It will be inflexible righteousness. In other words, it will no longer be grace that's standing there at the judgment seat when an unbeliever stands there and trying to, trying to plead for their soul. Are you all following me? That this... God deals with people, even lost people today. He's dealing with them in grace. He's giving them the opportunity to come and hear the word of God preached and proclaimed freely. Anyone who wants to enter into the doors of this place can walk right in here and can hear the word of God. And yet when judgment day comes, it will not be grace anymore. It will be inflexible righteousness. What does that mean? It means if you don't have Christ's righteousness when you're standing at the judgment seat, you will never have it. The only way you're going to have it is to believe, repent, and believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Again, people look at this and they say, what was Jesus doing? Jesus is declaring the truth. He's even following the letter of the law. He says, don't just believe me. Now think about what he just did. I'm talking about resurrection of, unto death. I'm talking about resurrection unto life. And he says this, but don't just believe me. 
because that would not even meet the basic requirements of what the Bible requires, that there be at least two witnesses. So here we have Jesus saying, my will will be the same as the Father's. Now look at verse 31. Now this is where we started. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. We've already dealt with. Remember Christ, how did this whole interaction take place? This all came up because Christ was accused of breaking the Sabbath. And, verses 16 18, way back, this has been weeks ago now, and he claimed equality with God. This is like Jesus being on trial. He's been accused of breaking the Sabbath and claiming equality with God. In response, this is like a defendant being called to the stand and providing his witnesses who can speak or commend my story. Okay? It's, it's not a courtroom scene, but that's what helps our mind. It, when I think about a lot how Jesus deals with, I always think of a courtroom scene because it's really the courtroom, it's not the way God's going to function, but it, it, it kind of helps us see some things, right? You've got a judge, you've got a prosecutor, you've got a defendant. They're calling witnesses. You've got a defense attorney. You're calling witnesses to the stand, and they're to testify on the character or on behalf of the person being falsely accused. Jesus here says, though I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, at a couple chapters ahead, you don't have to turn there, but in John 8, 14, here's what Jesus says. He says, Jesus answered and said unto them, though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I came and whether I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whether I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. What Jesus is saying here. He's speaking of the law of God in the scriptures. The law of God, the scriptures, require two or three witnesses for any truth to be established. Okay, we've established that already today. The words of men, now get this, here's the, here's the quandary we're in. The words of men need confirmation. The words of the Son of God truly don't need to be confirmed. If the Son of God says it, it's true. If you come and tell me a story, or you come and give an accusation about someone, and you should do the same with me, I should not believe you alone, and you should not believe me alone. Now, we got a problem anyway. If we're coming in private and you're making an accusation against someone else, and I'm making an accusation, we got, that, we got bigger fish to fry there anyway. But don't expect me to believe you just because you gave testimony of what happened or what the accusation is. The Bible even says, if you bring an accusation against a pastor, I'm just telling you this, that accusation should never be without witnesses. So if you make an accusation against me, for example, your witness alone is not going to be enough, but you should have a couple witnesses who will witness and testify to the same accusation saying, yes, we know this to be true, that Pastor Cochran is an absolute snake. And here's why. Okay? It shouldn't just be you. You should be able to have other witnesses. Christ is not saying that my word is like man's. But remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He said, we're going to do it according to the way the law and the scripture is written, not that his words have to be confirmed. If Jesus Christ says it's so, I don't need anybody else to confirm it. If Jesus, like in John 14, says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, guess what? I believe it. I don't need anyone else to tell me, is that really true? Okay? 
So here we have Christ came to fulfill all righteousness and to do all that was to be done according to the scriptures. Next week, we're going we're gonna to see Jesus actually use the scriptures as the basis of everything that he's saying. What he's going to do is he's going to begin to set forth witnesses to his own deity and to what he's been doing. Look what he says in verse 32. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Now this, I believe, is a direct witness of the Heavenly Father. I believe he's acknowledging in this statement that the one who bears witness of me is the Father that is, I am equal with. There's an interesting passage in 1 John chapter 5, and if you could turn there, please, that will be helpful this morning. 1 John 5, because this is one of those passages that kind of sets all these things in order. 1 John 5, verse 7. The Bible tells us, for there are three that bear record or give witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. On a side note today, if you have the Son, you have the resurrection of life awaiting you. If you don't have the Son, you have the resurrection unto damnation awaiting you. What is going to separate those who are resurrected unto life and those who are resurrected unto damnation? Jesus Christ is the difference. Okay? You have the Son, you have life. You don't have the Son, you have eternal damnation. That's as simple as it can be put. That's establishing the witnesses. That's establishing what can be true. God's witness is always greater than man's witness. I will always choose to believe God over any witness you put before me. Bring the greatest preacher in the world that you know. If his witness goes against Christ, I'll believe Christ every time. You say, this man pastors a church of a million people. I'll believe Christ before I'll ever believe the testimony of that man first. Because the testimony of God is greater. Where is the testimony of God given in this book? So I would also go out on a limb and say this. Any book, any publication, anything you bring me, I will believe this book over anything that you bring me. You say, what if it's got scientific evidence behind it? I'll still believe this. What if it's got years of research behind it? This is, this is the greatest mind the world has ever seen. Uh, excuse me, I would rather have he who created the mind than to have the greatest mind who's ever been educated. Right? You can have the, great, you can have the most educated man. He can have 12 PhDs. I'm going to believe Christ above him. Now, I still want man's word to be confirmed. Going back to that. You say, preacher, you don't trust people. Oh, I trust them. But the testimony of one man 
needs to be confirmed. You know how much trouble we would solve in the world and even in our churches if we actually practice that? There are churches that have completely fallen apart because one person's testimony that was unsubstantiated and unconfirmed and was not brought has brought down an entire ministry because it was allowed to run crazy. Because some man thought, I know what's going on at that church, and he destroyed it. Nobody confirmed it. Yet Jesus is saying, you know what? I came to fulfill all righteousness. I will abide by that, but I want you to know something. My testimony is greater than any man's, but here are my witnesses. God the Father, John the Baptist, we'll see next week the scriptures. I have all these witnesses bearing forth the reality of who I am, my deity. Look what he says. He says, you sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. Jesus is not being a smart aleck here. But do you realize he's, he's saying that the reason that John was sent was to bear witness unto the truth? But I didn't have to have him to be true. Why was John sent? I love this. Look what your Bible says. Why was John sent? That ye might be what? Saved. John wasn't really sent to confirm the reality of who I am. Ultimately, John was sent that you might be saved. That's why John was sent, because I am truth. Again, understand the context of a scripture, and it will completely open up and change the reality of what the scripture is actually talking about. Now, we understand here that the Lord reminds them why he sent John. John was a faithful witness of Christ's person and his work. In other words, he came to give witness of the Savior that would come. We remember all the way back many months ago when John said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John acknowledged, He that comes after me, I am, I'm not even worthy to tie the latchets on his shoes. I'm not worthy of this. Jesus is not appealing to the witness of John for a confirmation of his own works and his own words. He's appeal, he gave them John for their sake that they might be saved. John was sent to arouse men's attention and to produce in them a sense of a need. You know what the preacher does today? He does nothing more than is attempting to arise in you a sense of a need. When you got saved, it was because you had a need. A need to be saved. We don't create that sense. I cannot today, if there's someone here today who has still never repented to believe the gospel, I cannot make that happen, but I can preach the word of God. The word of God makes that need arise up in you. And that's why people who've sat for years suddenly perk up one day and they say, wait a minute, have I had this wrong all of my life? Is what this preacher saying, is it really true? Am I really condemned? I've been told all my life I'm okay because I give. I've been told I'm okay. But this preacher's saying something through this book, and I see it. You know, some of you struggle mightily trying to wake people up. You can't do it. You've got lost, you've got friends and family right now. You say, wake up! 
and it does nothing. You take scripture and you say, look, and they say, what? what? But one day, if they're one of God's, they're one of his sheep, they're going to sit the same way they've sat for years. They're going to have that book open. And that preacher's going to say something and they're going to say, that's me. Through our witness, through our speaking, through our preaching, what are we doing? We're just seeking to, uh, to arise in them, showing them their need. How are you going to show people their need? Give them the book. No man's ever come to Christ by being persuaded by your intellect or my intellect. No blind eyes ever been made to see just because I'm smart or you're smart. Your eyes were opened by God opening them the same way that lost loved one you're talking about right now or praying about, the only way that's happening is when God opens their eyes. What are we supposed to do? Bear witness of the truth. You say, I've told them the gospel 50 times. Tell them 51, 52, 53, 54, and keep doing it. You're not the one that's going to open their eyes. You are preaching the word that is going to open their eyes. Here Jesus is standing right before them and their eyes are sealed shut. He's going to tell them that much. He's going to say, you don't, you don't believe me because my word does not abide in you. This witness, Jesus speaks of John. Look what he says about John. He bare witness unto the truth, but I received that testimony from man. He was a burning and shining light. And watch this. Here's the, here's the condemnation. And ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. When John first came onto the scene, everybody loved John. They loved John so much that John was believed to be the Messiah. John had a whole following of quote-unquote disciples. But then John started doing something. Y'all ready for this? John started proclaiming, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And as soon as he started doing that, oh, we don't want nothing to do with John. John the Baptist had his head lifted off from his shoulders. John was a burning and shining light. He was a popular preacher for a while until he started preaching the truth. And when the truth came out, he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sins of the world. I'm not worthy to even tie the latches on his shoes. That's the man you ought to be following after. John, 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 we don't want any part of you. And suddenly John was taken off the scene. That's what this is a reference to. He was a burning and a shining light and you were willing to rejoice in his light. Jesus himself had said that John's testimony of me supported me. But then he gives a far greater. Look what he says. And as great as John the Baptist was, he says, but I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. He says, as great of a witness as John was, you know what my greatest witness is? My Father, who, by the way, I've been telling you I'm equal with. That's my greatest witness, God the Father. Now you've got the three witnesses requirement met, right? You've got two at least. You've got total three. Jesus is testifying for himself. You've got God the Father. And you have John the Baptist. These three men or these three individuals, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, 
which we'll see he'll deal with that. They bear witness of me, and the Father, verse 37, himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither, neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. Now, you think that wasn't an indictment. He's telling them who've trusted in this God for years. He says, you've never seen him, and you've never heard his voice. Yeah, that, that, that gets invitations to preach all over town. You're telling them, you're lost. You've, you, this God you think you're obeying, you've never even heard him. It's an indictment against them. Again, Jesus now provides these infallible witnesses. He reminds them how John had been sent unto them, John the shining light. While they pretended to have this great affection for John, they turned away when they saw John's purpose was to bear witness of Christ. They turned away. But then notice Jesus says something. He says, the Father has given me to finish the same works that I do. What are these works he's talking about? He's talking about his, his works and his miracles. You know, the miracles were an unmistakable witness to who he is. Now remember, what was at the heart of this entire situation? The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Okay? That's, that's what John chapter 5 is about. We talked about this month. It's been over a month now. Two months ago, this all started when Jesus healed the impotent man who'd been in that condition for years and years. Suddenly, Jesus set his eyes upon him. He raised him up and he walked. That is a testimony or a witness to God. And that's what he's referring to. He frequently would appeal people to look at my works as a divine testimony. Even over in, in John 10, verse 25, Jesus says this. He says, I told you and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. Now he's accusing these Jews of saying, you don't even believe the miracles. You don't believe the mighty works that I did. Now let's, let's, play, let's play the advocate on the other side for a minute. Let's say there was only one. Let's say this was the only miracle ever done. We might have reason to stop and say, wait a minute. Okay. You expect me to believe Jesus is God because he healed one person at the pool of Bethesda. Reasonable people might say, eh, I'm not so sure I can believe that. Here's the reality about Jesus' miracles. They were too numerous to count. And by the way, there's reason to believe we don't have them all. Now, there's an, interesting, there's an interesting project for the week. Go through and try to count how many miracles Jesus performed, how many are in the Bible. Count them all. Count his works and his miracles. See if you can come up with a number. It was more than that. So his miracles, it wasn't one miracle. He had done many miracles. How great were these miracles? They were supernatural works. Why were they supernatural works? People who were dead were now alive. People who were once lame can now walk. That's a supernatural miracle, isn't it? If you die in this service, I can't raise you from the grave. I can't raise you up. Hope it doesn't happen, but if you hurt yourself this afternoon, I can't heal you here. We'll have to call somebody to come help you. Please don't hurt yourself today. I can't heal you. Only a supernatural God can do that, right? 
When did he do these miracles? Most of them were done publicly. He never took anybody into a side room and said, no, I'm going to do this. Don't let anybody see. He did it publicly. That means people saw it. But what was it about those miracles? Every miracle was a work of love, a work of mercy, and a work of compassion. They were never just about, hey, look how much power I have. Christ never performed a miracle just for that purpose alone, just to show you how much power I have. But all the miracles did this too. They all appealed to man's senses. What what, what does that mean? That means they could see them. They could often hear them. They were real. They were visible. There was nobody who could argue with the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. That man, we've seen him for 30-some years laying there. Nobody could deny that the miracle actually took place because the guy was up walking. What's Jesus telling them? I have surrounded you with reasons to believe my testimony. I've given you the witness of my father. I've given you the witness of John the Baptist. Yet you are still in unbelief. Again, look what he says in verse 37, verse 38. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he has sent, him ye believe not. The word is that great witness. If you believe today, you believe because of the word of God. Man asked this question, can man be saved apart from the word of God? And the answer is no. You can't be. You cannot come to know Christ without the word. Now that's a play on words. You can't come to know Christ without the word. Christ is the word. The scriptures, the word. That's why Jesus' first words when we come back next week are going to be search the scriptures. Because what? Search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life and they that are which have testify of me. Jesus is going to say, the word doesn't abide in you because you don't have the scriptures. Again, some of these Jews that were standing there were the religious leaders of the day who supposedly knew everything. And he said, you don't even have my word abiding in you. The Lord begins here to give solemn application, much like a preacher would do. He's bringing it to a conclusion. That's what we're going to deal with next week is really the conclusion of what he's saying to them. He's going to bring charges against them. Verse 38 is the charge you have not his word abiding in you. Verse 40, the phrase, ye will not come to me. Verse 42, ye have not the love of God in you. Verse 43, ye receive me not. Verse 44, ye seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Verse 47, ye believe not. Those are indictments against them. It is the preacher bringing his sermon to a conclusion. The basic charge is this. You have not my word abiding in you. Without God's word abiding in you, you will have nothing else. If God's word doesn't abide in you this morning, there will be no desire for God. Folks, we struggle today wondering why do people I know want nothing to do with God because the word of God is not there. You say, but I gave them a Bible five years ago. I've given them gospel tracts. I've talked to them. Do you know why they don't believe? Because the word of God is not in them. 
and you cramming it down their throat is not going to make it happen. You are to be a witness who gives them a thirst for the need that they have by giving them the Word of God. People often say, I gave somebody a Bible. What passage should they read? Any of them. And you say, but, but what's the one that's really going to persuade them? None of them is more powerful than the other. If God saw fit, they could be reading the begats of Chronicles. I'm not kidding you. And suddenly, there is going to be an interest in the things of God. That's what's wrong. There is no interest in the things of God. You say, I want them to be interested. So do I. God has never once declared, you open their eyes. All he has said is go into all the world and preach the gospel. Folks, that's all this church is trying to do. That's all we're supposed to be doing is just simply pointing people to he who will and can open the eyes of the unbeliever. We have fallen for every type of method in the world about how to make people make a decision, and most of it has turned into nothing more than false professions that last about five minutes because the word doesn't abide in them. Jesus says, you'll know who I am because my witness will abide in you. How do I know Christ is real today? It's not because you tell me. All of you could line up today one by one and say, you're a fool to believe Christ. I would say, no, I'm not. You say, well, what about this? What about this? I still believe Christ. His witness is greater than yours. If every one of you turn your back on God, I'm still going to follow Christ. Because you can't convince me that what he's saying is not true. You say, what if I bring up the greatest Bible scholar who's ever lived? Bring him on. Are you going to debate him? Probably not. I'm not going to waste my time debating with a fool. A person who says there is no God, the Bible, I'm not calling him that. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. I didn't say it. Why would you debate with a person who doesn't know God? You say, aren't we called to debate? No, we're called to preach. We're called to proclaim. Can I have a discussion with them? Absolutely, you can have a discussion with them. But don't believe that your discussion was the magic bullet that opened up their eyes and say, well, it's a good thing God put, it's a good thing God put me in their lives. He'd have done it in spite of you. You should just humbly thank God. I can't believe he allowed me to have a part in the salvation of this loved one. He allowed me to be there. He allowed me, he used me in some way. Give God all the glory for it and let's quit taking credit for things that we had nothing to do with. You've never won a soul on your own and you never will. All you've done is proclaim to them he who can save. You say, what if God chooses not to save them? His judgment is just. I don't like that preacher. There's parts, <laughs> I struggle with that too. But I also know that what I should have gotten, what I should be awaiting me, the only thing I've earned personally is resurrection unto damnation. That's what I've earned. If I experience a resurrection unto life, it's only because God, out of his marvelous grace, called me out of that and has now removed me from ever having to stand before him, standing before Christ in inflexible righteousness. Jesus 
himself says, if God's word has no place in man and man's hearts, they will not come to Christ. They will never receive him. They'll not love God. They'll not seek the honor that comes from God only. Folks, it is only as the word of God abides in us. It's all based upon Christ in us. Now, if I was to ask you today, how many witnesses do we need? Today as believers, do you, do you need Christ to be confirmed to you again and again and again and again? Or can you simply say, he is the son of God. He is exactly who he said he is. I have no reservations about that. I would tell you this morning, if you question even the smallest amount, is Jesus Christ really who he says he is? I would, I would encourage you greatly. You need to get on your face before God and seek him. You need to get in this book and say, listen, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time seeing that Jesus Christ is all that he said he is. Get in this book. You see, the reality is, is even when we think about the, 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 the meanings and the significance of these verses. We understand that Christ has already done it. And again, his witness is far greater. There's always going to be debates among people. There's always going to be controversy. There's always going to be sordid things that come out where one person says, I'm right, you're wrong. You're always going to need to collaborate those witnesses and say, hey, is this true? But when Jesus Christ, as we began in John 14, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. For a believer, that's a settled statement. I need no more confirmation. If you're praying every day, God, prove yourself to me again. There's something wrong with your walk. If you're saying things like, God, if you really love me, you'll do this. Christ, if you really love me, you won't let this happen. Christ, if you, listen, you either believe that he is the son of God or you don't. There is no, I'm a little gray on Christ still. He either is your all in all or he's nothing. You all follow me today? He's either all in all or he's nothing. I'm a little, little wishy-washy on what this Christ thing means. For a believer, there is no gray area. All that I am, all that I hope to be is based upon the merits of Christ and his righteousness, which has been imputed into my account, into me. And when I stand before him one day, the only thing I have is Christ's righteousness. That's it. Nothing in my hands will I bring. Nothing will I be able to say, here's why I'm here, Lord. Here it is. And on the same sad token, every unbeliever who stands there and says, Lord, now I believe in you. Now I want you. Here's, well, here's, here's how I wasn't so bad. Here's how I was better than most. The inflexible righteousness of God will be depart from me. I never knew you. That's the seriousness of the moment, folks. Is understanding the witness of Christ. Next week, we'll deal with how he's going to teach them search these scriptures search them and you will find the scriptures are about me again that's another accusation against the jews who looked at this entire book they looked at the old testament they didn't have the new they looked at the old old testament entire old testament and said this has nothing to do with christ yet i can show you christ 
without ever touching a New Testament book. If I set out for the next five years, so we're only going to talk about the Old Testament, I will show you Christ all over the Old Testament without his name ever being mentioned. Yet he's there. He tells them, search the scriptures. He's telling them, search the Old Testament and you'll find me. Let's pray together. Father.